0: Chapter thirteen part two of Marriage Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Patty Cunningham. Marriage Volume One by Susan Edmonstone Ferrier. Chapter thirteen part two. When Lady Audley's passion had somewhat cooled, she again sent for Alicia. She began by repeating her eternal enmity to the marriage in a manner impressive to the greatest degree and still more decisive in its form by the cool collectedness of her manner she then desired to hear what alicia had to say in exculpation of her conduct the profound sorrow which filled the heart of alicia left no room for timidity or indecision she answered her without hesitation and embarrassment and asserted her innocence of all deceit in such a manner as to leave no doubt at least of honourable proceeding in a few impressive words she proved herself sensible of the benefits her aunt had through life conferred upon her and while she openly professed to think herself in the present instance deeply wronged she declared her determination of never uniting herself to her cousin without lady audley's permission which she felt convinced was unattainable. She then proceeded to ask where she should deem it most advisable for her to reside in the future. Happy to find her wishes thus prevented, the unfeeling aunt expressed her satisfaction at Alicia's good sense and discretion, represented in what she thought glowing colors, the unheard-of presumption it would have been in her to take advantage of Sir Edmund's momentary infatuation, and then launched out into details of her ambitious views for him in a matrimonial alliance, views which she affected now to consider without obstacle. Alicia interrupted the painful and unfeeling harangue. It was neither, she said, for Sir Edmund's advantage, nor to gratify his mother's pride, but to perform the dictates of her own conscience that she had resigned him, she even ventured to declare that the sharpest pang which that resignation had cost her was the firm conviction that it would inflict upon him a deep and lasting sorrow lady audley convinced that moderate measures would be most likely to insure a continuation of alicia's obedience expressed herself grieved at the necessity of parting with her and pleased that she should have the good sense to perceive the propriety of such a separation sir duncan malcolm the grandfather of alicia "'had, in the few communications that had passed between Lady Audley and him, "'always expressed a wish to see his granddaughter before he died. "'Her ladyship's antipathy to Scotland was such that she would have deemed it "'absolute contamination for her niece to have entered the country, "'and she had therefore always eluded the request. "'It was now, of all plans, the most eligible, "'and she graciously offered to convey her niece as far as Edinburgh. "'The journey was immediately settled,' and before Alicia left her aunt's presence a promise was exacted with unfeeling tenacity, and given with melancholy firmness never to unite herself to Sir Edmund, unsanctioned by his mother. Alas, how imperfect is human wisdom! Even in seeking to do right, how many are the errors we commit! Alicia judged wrong in thus sacrificing the happiness of Sir Edmund to the pride and injustice of his mother, but her error was that of a noble, self-denying spirit, entitled to respect even though it cannot claim approbation the honourable open conduct of her niece had so far gained upon lady audley that she did not object to her writing to sir edmund dear sir edmund a painful line of conduct is pointed out to me by duty yet of all the regrets i feel not one is so poignant as the consciousness of that which you will feel at learning that i have for ever resigned the claims you so lately gave me to your heart and hand IT WAS NOT WEAKNESS, IT COULD NOT BE INCONSTANCY, THAT PRODUCED THE PAINFUL SACRIFICE OF A DISTINCTION STILL MORE GRATIFYING TO MY HEART THAN FLATTERING TO MY PRIDE. NEED I REMIND YOU THAT TO YOUR MOTHER I OWE EVERY BENEFIT IN LIFE? NOTHING CAN RELEASE ME FROM THE TRIBUTE OF GRATITUDE WHICH WOULD BE ILL repaid BY BRAVING HER AUTHORITY AND DESPISING HER WILL should i give her reason to regret the hour she received me under her roof to repent of every benefit she has hitherto bestowed on me should i draw down a mother's displeasure what reasonable hopes could we entertain of solid peace through life i am not in a situation which entitles me to question the justice of lady audley's will and that will has pronounced that i shall never be sir edmund's wife Your first impulse may perhaps be to accuse me of coldness and ingratitude in quitting the place and country you inhabit, and resigning you back to yourself without personally taking leave of you, but I trust that you will, on reflection, absolve me from the charge. Could I have had any grounds to suppose that a personal interview would be productive of comfort to you, I would have joyfully supported the sufferings it would have inflicted on myself. But question your own heart as to the use you would have made of such a meeting, bear in mind that lady audley has my solemn promise never to be yours a promise not lightly given then imagine what must have been an interview between us under such circumstances in proof of an affection which i can have no reason to doubt i conjure you to listen to the last request i shall ever make to my dear cousin give me the heartfelt satisfaction to know that my departure has put an end to those disagreements between mother and son of which i have been the innocent cause you have no reason to blame Lady Audley for this last step of mine. I have not been intimidated. Threats, believe me, never would have extorted from me a promise to renounce you, had not virtue herself dictated the sacrifice. And my reward will spring from the conviction that, as far as my judgment could discern, I have acted right. Forget, I entreat you, this inauspicious passion. Resolve, like me, to resign yourself without murmuring— to what is now past recall, and instead of indulging melancholy, regain, by a timely exertion of mind and body, that serenity which is the portion of those who have obeyed the dictates of rectitude. Farewell, Sir Edmund. May every happiness attend your future life. While I strive to forget my ill-fated affection, the still stronger feelings of gratitude and esteem for you can never fade from the heart of Alicia Malcolm. To say that no tears were shed during the composition of this letter would be to overstrain fortitude beyond natural bounds. With difficulty, Alicia checked the effusions of her pen. She wished to have said much more, and to have soothed the agony of renunciation by painting with warmth her tenderness and her regret. But reason urged that in exciting his feelings and displaying her own, she would defeat the chief purpose of her letter. She hastily closed and directed it, with a feeling almost akin to despair. The necessary arrangements for the journey having been hastily made, the ladies set out two days after Sir Edmund had so hastily quitted them. The uncomplaining Alicia buried her woes in her own bosom, and neither murmurs on the one hand nor reproaches on the other were heard. At the end of four days the travellers entered Scotland, and when they stopped for the night Alicia, fatigued and dispirited, retired immediately to her apartment. She had been there but a few minutes, when the chambermaid knocked at the door, and informed her that she was wanted below. Supposing that Lady Audley had sent for her, she followed the girl without observing that she was conducted in an opposite direction, when, upon entering an apartment, what was her astonishment at finding herself, not in the presence of Lady Audley, but in the arms of Sir Edmund, In the utmost agitation, she sought to disengage herself from his almost frantic embrace, while he poured forth a torrent of rapturous exclamations, and swore that no human power should ever divide them again. I have followed your steps, dearest Alicia, from the moment I received your letter. We are now in Scotland, in this blessed land of liberty. Everything is arranged. The clergyman is now in waiting, and in five minutes you shall be my own beyond the power of fate to sever us." Too much agitated to reply, Alicia wept in silence, and in the delight of once more beholding him she had thought never more to behold, forgot for a moment the duty she had imposed upon herself. But the native energy of her character returned. She raised her head, and attempted to withdraw from the encircling arms of her cousin. Never until you have vowed to be mine. The clergyman, the carriage, everything is in readiness. Speak but the word, dearest." and he knelt at her feet. At this juncture the door opened, and pale with rage, her eyes flashing fire, Lady Audley stood before them. A dreadful scene now ensued. Sir Edmund disdained to enter into any justification of his conduct, or even to reply to the invectives of his mother, but lavished the most tender assiduities on Alicia, who, overcome more by the conflicts of her own heart than with alarm at Lady Audley's violence, sat the pale and silent image of consternation. Baffled by her son's indignant disregard, Lady Audley turned all her fury on her niece, and in the most opprobrious terms that rage could invent, upbraided her with deceit and treachery, accusing her of making her pretended submission instrumental to the more speedy accomplishment of her marriage. Too much incensed to reply, Sir Edmund seized his cousin's hand, and was leading her from the room. "'Go, then,' Go, marry her, but first hear me swear, solemnly swear, and she raised her hand and eyes to heaven that my malediction shall be your portion. Speak, but the word, and no power shall make me withhold it, dear Edmund exclaimed Alicia, distractedly, never ought I have allowed time for the terrifying words that have fallen from Lady Audley's lips. Never for me shall your mother's malediction fall on you. Farewell for ever and with the strength of desperation she rushed past him and quitted the room sir edmund madly followed but in vain alicia's feelings were too highly wrought at that moment to be touched even by the man she loved and without an additional pang she saw him throw himself into the carriage which he had destined for so different a purpose and quit for ever the woman he adored it may easily be conceived of how painful a nature must have been the future intercourse betwixt lady audley and her niece the former seemed to regard her victim with that haughty distance which the unrelenting oppressor never fails to entertain towards the object of his tyranny while even the gentle alicia on her part shrank with ill-concealed abhorrence from the presence of that being whose stern decree had blasted all the fairest blossoms of her happiness alicia was received with affection by her grandfather and she labored to drive away the heavy despondency which pressed on her spirits by studying his taste and humors, and striving to contribute to his comfort and amusement. Sir Duncan had chosen the time of Alicia's arrival to transact some business, and instead of returning immediately to the Highlands, he determined to remain some weeks in Edinburgh for her amusement. But little attractive as dissipation had been, it was now absolutely repugnant to Alicia, She loathed the idea of mixing in scenes of amusement with a heart incapable of joy, a spirit indifferent to every object that surrounded her, and in solitude alone she expected gradually to regain her peace of mind. In the amusements of the gay season of Edinburgh, Alicia expected to find all the vanity, emptiness, and frivolity of London dissipation without its varied brilliancy and elegant luxury yet so much was it the habit of her mind to look to the fairest side of things and to extract some advantage from every situation in which she was placed that pensive and thoughtful as was her disposition the discriminating only perceived her deep dejection while all admired her benevolence of manner and unaffected desire to please by degrees alicia found that in some points she had been inaccurate in her idea of the style of living of those who formed the best society of edinburgh the circle is so confined that its members are almost universally known to each other, and those various graduations of gentility, from the city's snug party to the duchess's most crowded assembly, all totally distinct and separate, which are to be met with in London, have no prototype in Edinburgh. There, the ranks and fortunes being more on an equality, no one is able greatly to exceed his neighbour in luxury and extravagance." great magnificence and the consequent gratification produced by the envy of others being out of the question the object for which a reunion of individuals was originally invented becomes less of a secondary consideration private parties for the actual purpose of society and conversation are frequent and answer the destined end and in the societies of professed amusement are to be met the learned the studious and the rational not presented as shows to the company by the host and hostess but professedly seeking their own gratification still the lack of beauty fashion and elegance disappoint the stranger accustomed to their brilliant combination in a london world but alicia had long since sickened in the metropolis at the frivolity of beauty the heartlessness of fashion and the insipidity of elegance and it was a relief to her to turn to the variety of character she found beneath the cloak of simple, eccentric, and sometimes coarse manners. We are never long so totally abstracted by our own feelings as to be unconscious of the attempts of others to please us. In Alicia, to be conscious of it and to be grateful was the same movement, yet she was sensible that so many persons could not in that short period have become seriously interested in her the observation did not escape her how much an english stranger is looked up to for fashion and taste in edinburgh though possessing little merit save that of being english yet she felt gratified and thankful for the kindness and attention that greeted her appearance on all sides amongst the many who expressed good-will towards alicia there were a few whose kindness and real affection failed not to meet with a return from her and others whose rich and varied powers of mind for the first time afforded her a true specimen of the exalting enjoyment produced by a communion of intellect. She felt the powers of her understanding enlarge in proportion, and with this mental activity she sought to solace the languor of her heart and save it from the listlessness of despair. Alicia had been about six weeks in Edinburgh when she received a letter from Lady Audley. No allusions were made to the past, she wrote upon general topics in the cold manner that might be used to a common acquaintance, and slightly named her son as having set out upon a tour to the continent. Alicia's heart was heavy as she read the heartless letter of the woman whose cruelty had not been able to eradicate wholly from her breast the strong, durable affection of early habit. Sir Duncan and Alicia spent two months in Edinburgh, at the end of which time they went to his country seat in sure. The adjacent country was picturesque and sir duncan's residence though bearing marks of the absence of taste and comfort in its arrangements possessed much natural beauty two years of tranquil seclusion had passed over her head when her dormant feeling were all aroused by a letter from sir edmund it informed her that he was now of age that his affection remained unalterable that he was newly arrived from abroad and that notwithstanding the death-blow she had given to his hopes He could not refrain, on returning to his native land, from assuring her that he was resolved never to pay his addresses to any other woman. He concluded by declaring his intent on of presenting himself at once to Sir Duncan, and soliciting his permission to claim her hand, when all scruples relating to Lady Audley must, from her change of abode, be at an end. Alicia read the letter with grateful affection and poignant regret. Again she shed bitter tears of disappointment at the hard task of refusing for a second time so noble and affectionate a heart. But conscience whispered that to hold a passive line of conduct would be, in some measure, to deceive Lady Audley's expectations, and she felt, with exquisite anguish, that she had no means to put a final stop to Sir Edmund's pursuits, and to her own trials, but by bestowing her hand on another. The first dawning of this idea was accomplished by the most violent burst of anguish, but far from driving away the painful subject she strove to render it less appalling by dwelling upon it, and laboring to reconcile herself to what seemed her only plan of conduct. She acknowledged to herself that, to remain still single, a prey to Sir Edmund's importunities and the continual temptations of her own heart, was, for the sake of present indulgence, submitting to a fiery ordeal from which she could not escape unblameable without the most repeated and agonizing conflicts three months still remained for her of peace and liberty after which sir duncan would go to edinburgh there she would be sure of meeting with the loved companion of her youthful days and the lurking weakness of her own breast would then be seconded by the passionate eloquence of the being she most loved and admired upon earth she wrote to him repeating her former arguments declaring that she could never feel herself absolved from the promise she had given Lady Audley, but by that lady herself, and imploring him to abandon a pursuit which would be productive only of lasting pain to both. Her arguments, her representations, all failed in their effect on Sir Edmund's impetuous character. His answer was short and decided. The purport of it, that he should see her in Edinburgh, the moment she arrived there. "'My fate is then fixed,' thought Alicia, as she read this letter." i must finish the sacrifice the more severe had been the struggle between love and victoria's duty the more firmly was she determined to maintain this dear-bought victory alicia's resolution of marrying was now decided and the opportunity was not wanting she had become acquainted during the preceding winter in edinburgh with major douglas eldest son of mr douglas of glenfern he had then paid her the most marked attention and since her return to the country, had been a frequent visitor at Sir Duncan's. At length he avowed his partiality, which was heard by Sir Duncan with pleasure, by Alicia with dread and submission. Yet she felt less repugnance toward him than to any other of her suitors. He was pleasing in his person, quiet and simple in his manners, and his character stood high for integrity, good temper, and plain sense. The sequel requires little further detail— Alicia Malcolm became the wife of Archibald Douglas. An eternal constancy is a thing so rare to be met with, that persons who desire that sort of reputation strive to obtain it by nourishing the ideas that recall the passion, even though guilt and sorrow should go hand in hand with it. But Alicia, far from piquing herself in the lovelorn pensiveness she might have assumed had she yielded to the impulse of her feelings, diligently strove not only to make up her mind to the lot which had devolved to her but to bring it to such a frame of cheerfulness as should enable her to contribute to her husband's happiness when the soul is no longer buffeted by the storms of hope or fear when all is fixed unchangeably for life sorrow for the past will never long prey on a pious and well-regulated mind if alicia lost the buoyant spirit of youth the bright and quick play of fancy yet a placid contentment crowned her days and at the end of two years she would have been astonished had any one marked her as an object of compassion she scarcely ever heard from lady audley and in the few letters her aunt had favoured her with she gave favourable though vague accounts of her son alicia did not court a more unreserved communication and had long since taught herself to hope that he was now happy Soon after their marriage, Major Douglas quitted the army upon succeeding to a small estate on the banks of Lochmarlie by the death of an uncle, and there, in the calm seclusion of domestic life, Mrs. Douglas found that peace which might have been denied her amid gayer scenes. End of chapter thirteen, part two. Recording by Patty Cunningham.